Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary Temporary Experts. Experts. This week's topic is the The Olympics, Olympics, because it's it's in in the news. But first, Davis wanted to talk about something else, right, Davis? Yes, something else that has also been in the news. And it related a little bit to a topic we covered uh, a couple of weeks ago when we were talking about space junk. Space junk. Space junk. And we, we touched a little bit on the uh, the billionaire space race mm-hmm. that has been uh, eaten up the headlines in the last couple of months. And as so a, many memes. So many memes. Oh, some, <laughs> some top tier, high quality memes. And the ones that have come out the, out of the latest Jeff Bezos <laughs> launch are top notch. They are some, it is some funny stuff because it's like, I don't know if you have seen it, but the, I, I know you've seen it because I sent you a yeah. photo of it. <laughs> but rocketry has always been accused of being a somewhat, a um, phallic. phallic endeavor. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. You know. The, every spaceship is, uh, it's got a shape. Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I would make it at a certain point that the argument that that shape is, is the most efficient shape with the current rocketry technology we have, but it doesn't lessen the fact that they all look like giant penises. Yep. Um, but that <laughs> is until <laughs> Jeff Bezos rode into the stars this past week on what literally looked like a rock sh- rocket ship penis. It really did. It was like... So you've seen Austin Powers, right? Oh, yeah. So obviously there's that famous bit from the start of Austin Powers, and he's looking at the radio, the the sonar, the radar, and the ship flies on, and it looks like a giant Johnson. Johnson. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, the memes, like, you've got, and, and, you know, like it's just too on the nose. It's almost to the point where it's, like, either someone knew exactly what they were doing, (laughs) and nobody really thought twice about it, or the whole thing is an intentional joke that Jeff Bezos has just decided not to let us in on it. Because he's he is a bald man who has rode a giant penis into space. He is literally Dr. Evil. If yeah. he created a miniature clone of himself, he would literally be Dr. Evil from Austin Powers. Yeah. But he doesn't have to hold any any, any company's ransom. I was going to say, though, he's got his... Because he just his, held his, Ameri- his workers' <laughs> ransom. $100 billion. More than that. Yeah. Oh, dear. Fun times. But yeah, I thought it, I thought we, I would bring it up. I would provide this little update for our listeners because uh, it's pretty ridiculous. You've got, you know, uh, men with uh, more money than God and mm-hmm. literally ha- are having their own private space race. Yeah. They, they could be solving so many global problems, but instead they would like to have this well, I can get to space first. Mm-hmm. And then who went first? Was it? Branson. Branson went first, but then... Mu- and he bumped, uh, his, he bumped his flight up. He wasn't going to yeah. go until the end of the summer. It was going to be like August or no, something. But he wanted to be first. But then Bezos he was said, like... He claims that it, it wasn't because he wanted to be first. Sure, he, he sure. And then Bezos was like, well, he didn't really go to space. He didn't go high enough. He went to it, low Earth orbit. <laughs> but if you look like that NASA considers that like astronaut level... So Davis is doing it kind of, but it's just, it, the whole thing is just like, oh my God, you have so much money that you stole from people because you don't yep. become a billionaire without like something unethical going along the way. And now they're in space. The, my favorite joke with the whole billionaire space race was uh, someone, is a, a, someone like a news guy I watch on YouTube and he saying like, 
And this week, we sent billionaires to space. And then he had a sound effect of, like, cheering. Like, Yay! <laughs> and then he was like, and then they landed safely. And then there was a sound effect of booing. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. funny. I know. It's, it's pretty ridiculous. Like, my silver lining mindset, uh, sort of, like, I'm of the belief that if more people, the general populace could see, and even like our leaders and things like that, could see Earth from the perspective of like the International Space Station, that it would change their outlook in such a profound way, at least some of them, because yeah. it's like nothing is perfect, yeah. but it would change, like, I know that I want to see the Earth that way one day. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, I would go to space if someone walked, knocked on the door right now, and it's like, <laughs> I have a ticket, so you can, I've got your golden ticket, Willie. Wait, no, that was a terrible reference. That, I was trying to make a Willy Wonka reference. Yeah, didn't and I, and quite get there. No, I was Charlie. Charlie. Charlie and your <laughs> and your lying grandfather, who's not really infirm but can dance musical numbers in the street. But this this has gone way off track. Yeah, this is a side but, track. <laughs> we haven't even started. <laughs> but my point being is that like I really do believe that if more people could see the earth from that perspective, it would it would cause such a profound shift in the way that a lot of people think. And especially people that make these types of decisions about like that have this type of power and can make these decisions that affect thousands, if not millions of people. Um that it would really make our world, it would make human beings a better species because our understanding of our connectivity and the way that the earth is a system as a whole, like, you know, this is like we were talking about in our last episode with the climate change stuff is mm-hmm. I think that, that that viewpoint, that perspective and gaining that understanding of the earth would really help with some of those challenges. But that is like the ultimate in silver lining thinking. <laughs> yeah, like, it's a very yeah. nice silver lining to think yeah. about and be like, that's hopefully, and like, I'm all for, if you have a ton of money and you want to invest in science and research and help out where there is no money in science and research, I'm all for it. I just think there are much more important science and research to be investing in than bringing yourself to space. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, I think everyone's opinion on this is kind of valid because it's ridiculous. I think it's ridiculous, but I mean, I think it also has like, there are some interesting ramifications for, you know, this is sort of what commercial flight was like really early on, right? People would get dressed up to go on airplanes because it was such an event. Many people didn't expect that they would ever experience anything like that in their lifetimes. Um, And I think that this is a very similar advent of commercial space flight, but I think it's just, it, it is really highlighting that, you know, yeah, you've got this 1% of 1% of 1% of people that can literally do whatever they want because they have so much money. Yeah, especially after the pandemic. Yeah. Next, we're going to have, what, billionaires drilling into the core of the earth to try to reach the the center of the earth, like that movie, The Core. We're making a joke about it, but I don't put anything past anything now. But I mean, you look mm -hmm. at, like, satire, and it's like, how do you even write satire now because it's just real life? So <laughs> and that and that, and just to put one like cap to put the cap on this story okay. if you if you were on the fence about how you feel about this you have to hear this quote from Jeff Bezos so after the space <laughs> flight he's doing some presser or whatever and he's the literal quote is I want to thank the Amazon employees and anyone who ordered stuff off Amazon because you made this happen. You paid for it. Uh, like, it literally, he used the word paid in the quote. And and it's just like, if you needed any stronger indication of the out of touch and the tone deafness of people who have literal trillions of dollars more than you will ever possess in your entire lifetime, that is your, that is your moment. Like, yeah. there's no more perfect encapsulation of the entire problem than, yeah. than that, I think, but... For a lighter note, though, if you have good memes of this, send them to us because, you know, 
it's a ridiculous situation, so we yeah. might as well laugh about it. Oh, absolutely. Whole life philosophy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, m- moving on from billionaires <laughs> in space, what we're really here to talk about is something that I, I mean, okay, as much as there are some serious issues surrounding the ja- uh, the Japan Olympics, the Tokyo Olympics this year, mm-hmm. obviously were supposed to happen in 2020, yeah. didn't because of that thing that's been affecting the entire world. What? Um, and they, they really pressed hard to have it happen this year because obviously next year is another Olympic year. It's the Winter Olympics. Yeah. And, you know, um... Anyone that's from Calgary kind of knows that Calgary was thinking about doing an Olympic bid a couple years ago. We even had a whole plebiscite about it. But the cost of hosting the Olympics is astronomical now. Huge. There's a lot of infrastructure costs. The IOC obviously has some issues uh, with corruption, Mm -hmm. uh, to say the the least about it. So, you know, there's this huge... There's a lot of controversy around the Olympics at times. But obviously, all of that aside, especially with with the COVID stuff in Japan right now, like... I personally love the Olympics. It's a it's winter, summer doesn't matter. I love seeing, I love sport and I love seeing human beings perform at the absolute peak of human ability, human ability. And I like to see some of the sports that you don't normally get to catch on primetime TV, like really prominently featured, like speed walking. I've never been to a speed walking <laughs> event, but it's, it's crazy to me. I mean, I think it's one of those sports that I watch and I'm like, I could be an Olympic speed walker, but I know that that's not really true. I remember the first year they had Olympic speed walking and so many people kept getting disqualified because there's people watching as they go by and if yeah. your feet both come off the ground, they like, they disqualify, <laughs> like so yeah. many people were getting like, You had a flight phase, space. that's a run. Yeah, you're out. Um, yeah. yeah, and I grew up watching the Olympics too and like every summer that there was an Olympics, I was, I also, as a gymnast, what else is the, what else do you aim for as a gymnast other than mm-hmm. the Olympics? So it, it really was a huge thing and as I've gotten older I've stopped watching it as much or like I don't have cable I was gonna say don't have cable TV so can't watch it anyway (laughs) although this year this year it seemed that they seem to have caught up to that now Mm -hmm. you can get it you can watch everything online okay but I think I also started as I got older I started seeing the the effects of the Olympics and like the Mm -hmm. ripples out onto the city and the community and like the pressure the Olympics puts on athletes in certain sports like gymnastics and, and all sports, really, because you have to peak at this very specific time. And if you yes. don't peak at that time, then you're, like, not going to be remembered in your sport, which is really ridiculous. And it, yep. gymnastics is just a heightened example of this because very few female gymnasts go to the Olympics more than once. Right? Yeah. And mm-hmm. like, They're four years apart. And you, you, know. you can only stay super elite for so long because you have to be so small and all of this. Like, yeah. And the tricks are so hard nowadays. <laughs> it is mm-hmm. wild. But it is it is awesome to see what the human body is capable of. Yes. In like an individual pursuit and what the mind is capable of and what they're capable of pushing through and like the pressure of being at an Olympics. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Like to be there and all of a sudden you're in a stand with like hundreds of thousands of people like shouting and you have to focus on the thing that you're doing is is wild and what what an achievement of humanity. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I love also seeing like when someone succeeds like that mm-hmm. pure that pure human emotion, the pure joy, the the just the relief that comes about for some of these people that have trained for their entire lives yeah. for this, you know, for some of these sports it's seconds, right? Yeah. Like you're you are competing for seconds, but you are training for years. Oh yeah. Uh like literal cumulative years in terms of hours. Like oh, yeah. it's crazy. And I I just like I enjoy that we still celebrate that as a society, mm-hmm. even though again, I think the Olympics also for all of its strengths or all of the the sort of entertainment and joy that it brings to so many and 
and the opportunity it gives to the athletes. It also, it does, it highlights, I think, all of the problems that are, that are in professional and elite professional sports um, around the world. And I think that's kind of one of the things that happens every, every four years or two years when the Olympics come around, depending on if you're a summer or a winter fan. Or you're only going to watch one. <laughs> exactly. Every two years I'm tuning in, baby. I love the Winter Olympics. Obviously, I'm from a from Canada. You, you have to. You gotta have a winter sport in Canada or you get bored. I mean, he says that, but I like the Summer Olympics more. No, but that's fair. I, that's I just fair. did a sport you can do indoors all year round. <laughs> <laughs> and then you don't have to worry about it. Winter's actually better because it's too hot in the summer mm-hmm. and there's chalk everywhere. Yeah. But, but we are, he, yeah, so we thought, we and we kind of touched on it a little bit, but we thought we'd take a look at kind of two topics in sort of regards to the Olympics uh, that are kind of interrelated to each other. Absolutely. Uh, and we were going to talk about, like we've been saying, like this, what it takes to reach peak performance uh, and why or how the, the science has changed in the last 100 years yeah. to allow athletes to be doing things now in 2021 that were not quote unquote, were not possible in yes. 1936 or whatever Olympics you want to go back to. Mm-hmm. And then we were going to talk about how that technology also has led to something of a dark side within sport. Mm-hmm. Obviously doping, it's a big thing that comes up every year around the Olympics because the testing for it is so is so strenuous at the Olympics. And there's been, and then this is really sort of then snowballed into another conversation in the more recent uh, era around where like, Doping has led to our ability and our understanding of all these metabolites in the human body. And now you're starting to see certain athletes be essentially discriminated against for their biology. Yeah. And, and, you know, obviously trans athletes, this has been a big issue for a number of years, but now you're starting to see it just in, you know, in intersex athletes or those that just have variations in their physiology that are different from other people. So, and we're going to talk a little bit about that uh, uh, towards the end of today. But to start off, we thought we'd go just talking about like the sports themselves and how athletes in different sports try to reach peak performance in this way and through the training techniques and technology and all the different technologies around the equipment and what they wear and how they how they learn about their bodies and things. So since I always talk about gymnastics, <laughs> I thought we could start with gymnastics. So gymnastics is such a specialized sport like like all sports have become but gymnastics in particular I mean I'm close to it so I <laughs> just know more about it but even I mean if you think if I say think of a female gymnast describe like kind of their physical form very petite mm-hmm. probably about as close to five feet as you can get mm-hmm. um obviously very strong uh very lean um, and then I think it varies a little bit, you know, depending on the particular event that they sort of specialize in, I would say. Exactly. But they're, that you know that they're a specialist in gymnastics is another part of this, right? So Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so gymnasts back in the, back in like the 60s and stuff looked like normal women. They were pretty much, they were mostly in their 20s. Um, gymnastics was a very different sport back then. The bars were really close together. So if you were swinging from the high bar, you would like catch your hips I'm, I'm, I'm miming it for Davis, but you can imagine it. Uh, you, like, catch your hips on the low bar, and mm-hmm. then you can, like, bounce off and do a handstand on the high bar and things like that. So it was a very different sport in that respect. And then what really started changing the body type of it was Nadia Comaneci, uh, or Nadia Comaneci, who uh, was the first gymnast ever to get a perfect 10 in gymnastics at the Olympics. Mm. Uh, coached by Bella Caroli, Bella and Marta Caroli, who became 
later became the U.S. Olympic coaches in gymnastics and led the U.S. national program. And then got really, uh, Bella had some really, really bad coaching techniques and like, you know, abusive. He was from, oh, where was they, where were they from? Romania, I think. No, no, I should have checked this. <laughs> there was an Eastern European country that was like under. They heavy... were in the Soviet bloc. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it was all like, he could do like whatever he wanted to these, these girls in terms of like yelling at them and restricting their food and all of this stuff. And he started like, uh, they were using the technique of picking girls from kindergarten and stuff who seemed like they had ability and like bringing them to training facilities and training them like constantly and then keeping them like really small and, and getting them to do all of these difficult tricks. And then the smaller, like a smaller body, the reason that gymnastics has now selected for the smaller body, they, we followed the Nadia Komenich. Uh, the reason we followed the Nadia Komenich archetype is because she, if you're smaller, you can spin faster mm. and you can flip faster because you have less mass. So you're trying to get around. Uh, and I'm so, a big gangly person, so I understand this very well. Yeah. I do not spin very easily. <laughs> yeah. So you want this like small body type. So that was really the start in the seventies. And then if you tracked the size of, of Olympic gymnasts, they got smaller and smaller, mm. uh, into this like childlike body type. And then now, there were... it's sorry, cause we're mostly talking about female gymnastics. Yes. Is that also parts of that equally true for me- men's gymnastics as well? Yeah. Male gymnasts are not very tall. Mm. They are, they are built like Adonis with their just, if you think like that classic triangular body shape, the male gymnast is the epitome of this triangular body shape because they need so much uh, arm and chest strength mm-hmm. and core strength that they're really like super broad shoulders, teeny tiny waists. Um, and they're, yeah, they're not very tall. Mm. So I guess it's one of those things you, you watch it on TV and you never really, you can't pick it up because it's all the gymnasts standing next yeah, to each you ha- other. Yeah, you have no context. Yeah. <laughs> and you see yeah. a coach and you're like, that coach is huge. You're like, they're a normal sized human. You're just dealing with all of these short people. Yeah, I think um, with the women, it's sometimes <laughs> a bit more pronounced because also because like you're saying, the women are so young now that you yeah. can literally tell it's like, well, that's like a 14 year old girl. Yeah. And in the Olympics, I believe you have to be 16 to be a woman in the Olympics. Mm, um, okay. and, and they changed that. It wasn't too long ago. I think it was probably within my lifetime. But they changed you had to be 16, which also threw a bunch of women off because if you're 15 in your perfect year, then you'd be 19 for the next Olympics and you might not be able to compete. And there's like issues with... I think the sport is getting better now. And you see... I mean, you can even see if you look at gymnasts from the 90s to now, they were very thin in the 90s because there was this push for like... It was about the line. It was about the aesthetic. It was about no body fat. Whereas now if you look at like Simone Biles, she's jacked. And, like, you can see so much muscle because of what she has to do and put her body through that she wouldn't be able to do what she does if she was, like, under eating and, and being forced to do more cardio. So it's – you can really see the the evolution of the the sport. And as the as the gymnasts were smaller and they started doing more, like, harder tricks, then more gymnasts were able to do harder tricks. And then with the advent of television and things, then more people were exposed to gymnastics. So then more little girls wanted to be gymnasts and have this, like – it's like the little – it's definitely less of the the princess ideal compared to figure skating, which still has so much of this, like, the ice princess. Because gymnasts are tend to be a little stockier, tend to be a little, like, just a lot more muscular, especially in their upper bodies. But they, there's this, this like, you little girls would watch it and then want to do it. So then you have more girls doing it. So then you're able to find... Your girls. talent pool gets way bigger. Yeah. And yeah. so you can find the people who really, who really fit this body type and who really work with gymnastics of, like, okay, are they a risk taker, but obedient, right? Cause like you have to be very, very obedient to be in gymnastics and you start it when you're like four, 
<laughs> so the more people who knew about gymnastics, the more people who started going in it and then coaches could draw from their pools of like very, very young children and ask them to go into elite streams and things like that to start getting them on tracks. And like when I, I started gymnastics when I was four and my coach actually went to my mom and said like, your daughter should be on more of like com- the competitive track, but it was bumping me up to like 15 hours a week or something, which my mom was like, mm, no. And then I left gymnastics and I went back into gymnastics. And then when I was in, uh, I went into an elite stream at eight and I was training 25 hours a week with uh, like a an ex- like a dance class uh, in one of the evenings and like at eight, because that's what you have to do to be competitive, to learn the skills that have developed since the gymnast bodies have changed, become more able to do more things. Then they keep pushing it and pushing it to get like higher start values. And then when I was in high school, actually, they changed the the, uh, the scoring system. So Olympic gymnastics no longer is out of 10. Yeah. Everyone thinks yeah. this is perfect 10, but it's no longer out of 10. They, they switch to uh, like the figure skating model. There's an artistic score and a technical score now did those switches happen at around the same time because i know why figure skating switched because my mom is a massive figure skating fan and i through osmosis know an uncomfortable amount about figure skating it's a fascinating sport unbelievably amazing but the reason it changed in figure skating was because there was a controversy at the olympics one year where a judge was literally was in was cheating he was they were inflated it's actually this is partly a big story because uh it happened to a canadian to uh two of the canadians um they were pairs and they they missed out on a gold in those olympics because the russian judge underscored them and then overscored the russians and this came i can't remember how this they discovered this years later but it was a year or two later they discovered that this woman was being bribed or something was going on and they stripped the russians of their gold medal and the uh, the canadians were awarded and like again this is an event that i actually watched live and my mom has a very deep understanding of the sport and was sort of like we watched it and we're kind of like, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Like they had this, basically this perfect routine. The Russian judges score was like, and that was back in the day they used to drop the lowest score and the highest score. Right. So the Russian judge had sort of managed to kind of, I don't know exactly how they managed to do it, but that I know is when they changed that because it used to be a 10 system as well for six. figure skating. Wasn't it six? Something like that. Yeah. yeah. But it was a, it was a hard score. Yeah. Yeah. And now it is, yeah, the artistic and the technical element. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if it was because of the same thing. Obviously that has happened in gymnastics too, right? Oh, any, sure. any of the sports that are any judgment based. Sport. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh God. Where it's like, well, I don't think she did this. And then it's like, <laughs> well, all right. And the sport like gymnastics doesn't have instant replay. So right. I, I was watching a lot of the NCAA gymnastics this year. Uh, and they, they'll show instant replay for the spectator, but judges don't see instant replay. Yeah. Yeah. So you just have to like. Yeah, talking about like your life comes down to a second. If you're a specialist vaulter, your life is like what less than ten seconds, and you have to be perfect. And like any, like you take a step on the landing, like you're not winning, right? So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I don't know if it had to do with that, but I wouldn't be surprised if that was some of the justification. Okay. But I remember I was still doing gymnastics when this change came out, and I was super mad about it because it was, in my view, and that something that it does is it encourages gymnasts to learn harder tricks younger to really beef up their technical score. And then they don't have to worry as much about their artistic score. Right. So that if they have like the hardest tricks you can do in the routine, then their technical score is going to be off the charts and they will get full points in their technical score as long as they do the element. And then they might lose points in their artistic score if they don't do the element really beautifully, but they'll, they could still win. And I, I found this very frustrating because it's going to push younger gymnasts to do harder tricks faster 
without learning how to do them really, really like beautifully and perfectly. Mm-hmm. And like part of the reason that everything in gymnastics looks so beautiful and perfect is because it's the it's one of the safest ways to do the trick. Because these tricks are so difficult that the cleaner you are and the more you're able to keep like your legs straight as you're flipping or the, pr- the proper technique and the, and the shape of your body, you're going to be able to land safely and come out of the trick. So I was very concerned that when they implemented this new change that it was going to push gymnastics into an even more unsafe world, which has already happened in the sense of look at the tricks they're doing. Like I look at what they're doing in the Olympics now and it is just like astounding. It's a, like, I don't even understand how it's possible a lot of the time, like what they're doing. And that's as, but like this would not have happened if, if not for this selection of a certain type of body. Right. And the, 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 the equipment that they're going on, like the bars have changed. The vault is super different. So you think of men with the like pommel horse vault. Yeah. So the women, the the female vault used to look the same without the pommels. Uh, so it was just this like long brown rectangle, and it would be faced like perpendicular to you or like flat on to you, the flat side to you. Yeah, yeah. So as a gymnast, you like you would run at it and you'd go over it like this, like it would be like flat to you. So you'd go over it that way. So you had a very like it was like I think less than a foot maybe. Where you could you could place your hands and get off of it, and it wasn't springy. And then they introduced this new vault, and it's called like a tongue, and it really does look like a tongue. It's like shaped like I'm, <laughs> I'm just you can't through. mime. We're on a podcast. <laughs> I'm on a podcast. So just think of like a tongue that's like curved down, like hanging out of a mouth. So that's what this the new vault looks like, and it has it has a bit of like spring and give in it, and it's mm. it's longer. So it's like a couple of feet probably on top. So as you run at it, it's. Yeah, and it's and the tongue extends like down the front of it, so I think it makes it like a little safer to run at because vault can have some pretty bad injuries, so it makes it like safer to run at. You have more room for your hands to land on the vault, and the vault will help you a bit if you hit it in the right spot. It will help you spring off, which has allowed gymnasts to do harder, more difficult tricks because the 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 equipment is helping them more as they could go mm. too. Um, but it's not just gymnastics, right? Like we can see this this selection of body types and the the equipment itself has changed to really allow for the advancements that we've seen like running or swimming mm-hmm. you know it's interesting with the just to go back to gymnastics for a split second always <laughs> always down to go back to gymnastics is <laughs> like there's a really neat video and I'll try to find it maybe for the description um but of like it was like a video of a 1900s, 1920s uh, floor routine. So that's mm-hmm. when they're on the mat and they kind of have to go from corner to corner and they do tumble a lot of tumbles and, and stuff. Yeah. yeah. And you've probably seen it now and it's like, yeah, people are like, they're doing these crazy flips in the air yeah, like and back handsprings. And... Yeah, like three uh, three flips basically with like a quad spin. Yeah. Like it, it is. Yeah. Or like uh, six in a, like a bunch of them in a row. Like it is. Google yeah. a Simone Biles Olympic routine on floor. And prepare to be amazed. Yeah. And so that's what it was. It was like a comparison of this guy from 1930 and then some guy from 2010 oh, yeah. or whatever. And it's just not even the same thing. The guy from 1930 looks like he's walking across the yeah. thing, you know, like comparably. looks yeah. like he's just like out for a little skip. But uh, it really does show you. And like, and I watched another one of these. It was circulating a lot just before the Olympics about swimming where it was that it was a 1930s race. And the 2020s. Did I already mention this while we were recording? No, I think uh, you said it before. Oh, okay. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so it's like the 1930s race and this 2010 race or whatever for swimming. I think it's the front stroke. And the 2010 race is like, obviously there's a video quality difference. But uh, the 2010 race, the guy the guy finishes like 30 seconds, 40 seconds. I think the entire field is done 
in the 2020s or whatever before the first 1930s racer has even finished. Like, (laughs) and it shows how much the technology has changed over the years. Like, but it's interesting or like, and how athletics has changed and our training programs have changed um, to the point where like the swimming pool has changed. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, in the Olympics. So I saw, mm -hmm. uh, I saw like a progression of, the the like improvements in swimming so mm-hmm. imagine like a, a downwards graph but instead of just being like a straight line or a gentle curve it almost looks stepped as it goes mm-hmm. down and each step so it's like like the swimmers like were the best that they could be and then there was a, a technological change or like something that changed so one of the first ones was i think this was like the uh the butterfly they're talking about right um, right so the, the first one technique, yeah and the first one that i saw was the the flip under the water yep. so instead of having to stop and turn uh, once this flip was implemented and everyone started doing it, then you have this like sudden increase or a sudden, I guess, decrease in, in overall time yeah. of the race. Yeah. And then the next one was the addition of grates at the side of the pool. Yeah. So when the swimmers were moving the water and turning it around, it would just flow off into these grates instead of creating turbulence in the water that the swimmers are fighting against. So then you get another one of these little steps and then the switch from like the bathing suits they were before to these like full body, super slick yeah. ones. That well, they, they were now. wearing like regular old, like 1920s. You see them walking around, yeah. chitty, chitty, bang, bang, like, uh, I was going to say birthday suits. That's not right. <laughs> Swimsuits. And yeah, now they're wearing like, they look like freaking penguins, right? Yeah, they're like, sucked in yeah. and super, they shave off all their body hair. <laughs> yeah. I was actually reading about that in prep for this. So I learned that like, in fact, to the point where part of the reason they shave is not even for the actual aerodynamics of it. It's the feeling. Part of Ooh. it is this mental advantage <laughs> of knowing and the feeling in the water of moving yeah. faster. It gives you this like mental edge. And the point where a lot of the swimmers are saying that they're people think they shave all year round, but they're actually like some of the hairiest people because they'll go <laughs> these inc- yeah. to get the maximum boost, both both mentally and actually in your aerodynamics. They'll grow their hair longer. And then, so, uh, one of the, one of the swimmers who was like, uh, it was a male and female swimmer and they were a couple and they were saying, we will compare legs partway through the year <laughs> and you won't know who's the guy. Cause both legs are so hairy and, um, where they will only shave, like some of them will only shave, like the, like they'll start to slowly shave down the weeks leading up mm-hmm. and then we'll only shave like very similar to like a fighter, um, you know, like cutting weight to yeah. make weight and then they're going to build back up to, for the fight or things like that. Or they're going to, they, you want to hit the fight at your, your peak metabolism. Like when all of your muscles are strong yeah. is, or you, you taper down your training. Like yeah, yeah. Mo- pretty much everybody in any elite sport tapers their training down before you go into the big event. Yeah. But yeah, they're literally like tapering down their body hair and then they're <laughs> only doing their big shave, like the day of the race mm-hmm. to like maximize that feeling. So I just think it's hilarious. That is. Like there's even a technique to like when you should shave and it is, yeah. it's all an assistance of this idea of you have to peak at the exact moment that you're quote unquote going live you know and especially a sport like swimming where the the difference between winning and losing is nothing oh like yeah, the, absolutely. The, it's just like it's like a hair right like the 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 splits that they that they they produce well because yeah. swimming like running has to be measured to like the ten thousandth of a second nowadays yeah right? yeah and like imagine if you didn't have the the instant like the camera there right like they have like a laser gate now i think running has a laser gate and oh. i'm pretty sure swimming has a laser gate as that well makes sense. yeah well, like, running, they had to switch to a laser gate because the, the the some of the races were getting so tight that the photo finish wasn't uh, oh. cutting it anymore because they couldn't tell these. They needed to go to like hundreds of hundreds of a second yeah. or tens of 
thousandths of a second to be able to distinguish between who actually won a race, especially some of the sprint sprints, yeah. right? I bet the guy who invented lasers never anticipated that you, David. That's true. I guess I brought up lasers <laughs> in one of the other parts. I love lasers yeah. for this exact reason because it's just like this technology that was created. It's got no use when it's made, but then it's used in everything yeah. like 20, 40, 50 years later. Uh, very cool. It is very cool. And so, so like we've talked a little bit about like how some of the technology around the athletes have changed and like how some of the mindset towards training athletes has changed. And and, and the selection of different body types for different mm-hmm. sports. Like if you look at the, the NBA in the sixties yeah. versus, versus the NBA now, like I heard some stats, it was like one in 10 players in the NBA now is over seven feet. Mm-hmm. But if you, I don't, I don't remember when this talk was from, but it was like, if you, know someone in the U.S. who's over seven feet and they're between like 20 and 40, there's a one in six chance they play in the NBA. Like they currently play in the NBA because there's just been this selection for height. And then going to swimming, Michael Phelps, talk about a human being designed for swimming. He's, he has a long torso. He has broad shoulders. He has long arms. He has big hands and feet like flippers and he's double jointed. So he's, his arms and shoulders and stuff, all his joints are more range of motion. Yeah. He's more mobile. And then a long body, like a long torso makes you, um, like, like, like a canoe basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it gives you this long and you don't need very long legs. Um, so it's like, you got someone like that. And then runners are the opposite runners. You want like a short torso and long legs. So there was, there was a comparison between Phelps and I don't remember the name of the runner, but he holds the, I think the world record for the mile for the fastest mile. Mm. And there's a seven inch height difference between the two of them. The runner seven inches shorter than Phelps seven inches taller, but they wear the same length pants Yeah, because of the, the difference in the selection of body type. And it's like kind of the first technology change almost right of like it was this artificial selection instead of just whoever wanted to do it mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i think i don't want us to get too ahead of ourselves because okay. we're going to talk a little bit about na- natural advantage uh towards the end yeah but uh there's also been like obviously like we we're just talking about the lasers there's been like lasers, the, lasers. Hey, Dr. Um, Evil again. Sharks, <laughs> sharks with lasers, lasers on their head. Um, that's, yeah, that's Bezos' next project, everybody. I would not be surprised. Oh, I'm sure they've got some I'd sort be of excited. weaponized shark. Uh, sharks are already, but they're not. Sharks are lovely. Yeah. Anyway. Um, but it's also it's just this change in the technology around, like, uh, okay, so I know we did a baseball episode on. So I won't, I won't spend too long on this. I knew you'd bring up baseball. It's well, okay. I'm going to always bring up gymnastics. You're going to bring up baseball. It's well, just... baseball is in the Olympics this year. It's been a number of years since baseball really was. A, uh, was it baseball? Yeah, because like men's softball and women's softball has always been an Olympic sport. But it's been a number of years since they've done baseball. Oh, um, I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, and now they're doing, they're, they've got baseball back this year, I think. I think it's the first year for in the last little while. But anyway. anyhow, um, I always bring up baseball because like baseball has entered this new era with the stack cast technology yeah. where they are tracking like everything from the launch angle of the ball to, you know, the amount of spin the ball has out of the pitcher's hand. There's been some interesting stuff about that in the MLB this year. But but this technology, like all of these technologies are at play in like these elite sports to the point where like they are tracked. So, okay. Uh, have you ever seen the movie Rocky Four? Mm. That... The, with the Russian, right? Yeah, okay, Rocky yeah. Four is the one where he fights <laughs> Dolph Lundgren, and uh, the training. Yeah, and yeah. the training. So there's this training sequence in Rocky Four. Just to summarize it really quick, where Rocky, in his classic Rocky fashion, is like on some mountaintop in yeah. a lodge somewhere, and he's literally like 
pulling like sleds of equipment like with weighted with like coal or something yeah. like that he's with using a, a log as a weight he's like. got a literal <laughs> ox yoke around his shoulders and he's pulling it up the mountain in like knee deep snow and yeah. all this stuff and then they and this is of course it's a training montage it's a rocky yeah. movie and then they cut away to Dolph Lundgren and he's like hooked up to a machine he's got these tubes going into his mouth so they're measuring his oxygen output he's on a treadmill he's running covered in electrodes yeah he's, he's covered in electrodes <laughs> they're doing like every test on him that all this stuff like all this technology the, the entire Soviet sport machine is behind him and his ability and all this stuff but like that is what that's what's elite athletic training is almost across the board now yeah with with the exception of like there's fewer electrodes for the, most part. <laughs> <laughs> the electrodes and, are for for the for the silver screen baby yeah. and I, I haven't I haven't heard too much about wearable tech in gymnastics but in mm. running it's become super duper common in something like running. And so like, we all know like technology of shoes got better, right? They got lighter, different supports. There was the like, the the bear shoe. The not bear not shoe. like Not like a bear, but like, I forget what they're actually called, but it, the... the like so the, the one with the toes? Yeah, either the one with the toes or just like the, the sole is really, really thin. Right. Those sorts mm-hmm. of ones. I don't remember what they're called. Sorry, dad. Uh, <laughs> 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 lots about running. I can't remember terms and my brother. Uh, but yeah, so... There's been like all this shoe technology, but then there has been these little wearable tech things you can put on your shoe that they're they're really small devices and you add them on your shoe and they can measure so much stuff. They can measure, not only do they like count how many steps you're taking and measure like the length of your stride, but they can tell you, okay, how are you landing on each foot? Are you favoring one or the other? What does it mean for your hip position? Are your hips out of alignment? Uh, what are your knees doing? Like they can tell you so much now just from like attaching it to you and like having you go for some runs and then they can take that data and be like oh it looks like you're favoring this you need to adjust your run in this way to avoid injury and Mm -hmm. it's a huge thing in injury prevention and it's it's great for so many people or if you're coming off of an injury are you are you like favoring one side or the other like should you be like just how how should you be running to be most efficient and like healthiest Mm. right uh but you can take that from just, I want to know this so that I can be a better runner, to I want to use this to be the best runner. I want to use this to be the most efficient I can possibly to be. To hit your maximum potential and figure out where all your inefficiencies are, all your wasted energy, yeah. the places you need to train, yeah. all those things. Yeah, like should you be resting or should you be pushing harder yeah. or like where do you need, do you need to taper off or can you keep going? And yeah. it's it's really changed, like it's really changed what sport is. Yeah, you know, to the point where people can, you can go and buy something that's kind of similar from a Best Buy. Like, I've seen people buy this stuff for their golf swing. And it's an accelerometer that you put on your wrist or you put on your club and it records a bunch of information and you hook it up to your computer or even Bluetooth to your phone these days. And it sends a whole bunch of information and it just says like, okay, this is your swing path. This is where you've got a hitch. This is why you're slicing, you know, all sorts of things. Right. And it really has, I think it's really changed how sport, um, how sport is, is evaluated obviously, or training, especially. Yeah. I was doing a lot of running or not running, sorry. Rowing is one of my favorite sports in the summer Very Olympics. Cool. Uh, also, cause it's one of the sports that Canada has a really strong presence in. Yeah. I find it fascinating <laughs> to watch and I like to row. Like, I mean, I'm not a competitive rower, but I like to go canoeing and be on the water and those sorts of things. It's, it's a cool team sport. It is. About a team. it is a fascinating team sport. It's got a ton of history, obviously. Yeah. And 
but I was doing some research on rowing and the science and the, the biomechanics and all these things about rowing. And it was crazy. So I stumbled across this, like this sports science manual. And it was like seven or eight white papers that had all been put together over time about the science of the sport of rowing. And there was a bunch of history. There was a bunch of history of like how the canoes have changed, oh. uh, like all the technology in the canoes, the different materials, how, you know, sometimes a new composite material like carbon fiber would come out, yeah. but it would still take a few years for them to find the actual optimum way of creating canoe technology. The seats sliding didn't always happen. Yeah. Like the change to the oar shape, the oar material, the changes to how someone should, how the coxswain should sit in the boat, yeah. where the rower should sit. So, and like literally every physical aspect of this sport was not only thought about, but it had been tracked, graphed, and like sketched basically yeah. like where there were diagrams of, you know, okay, a rower, you know, if you're this tall, your feet should be at this angle. You, you should be this part below the boat lip. You should have this angle on your elbows when you're grabbing the oars. The oars should be set to this position. Like, and it was, and not just diagrams and talking about it, but literal like force diagrams of these are all the angles you should have. This is where your force is maximized. Here's a graph showing exactly the point in a stroke where you're outputting the maximum power because rowing is a sport, especially both individual and team rowing is not about the maximum. It's all like weightlifting, right? Weightlifting is like your maximum force output and you need to have this excessive force output in order to lift that weight. Mm -hmm. But rowing is more about this maximum, like efficient output, like the highest output at the most important time. Yeah. And to keep this smooth locomotion of the boat. Uh, sometimes it's called like gearing, right? It's the same thing with a bike. Whereas that a bicycle is a machine that is helping you move faster. So it's not always about outputting the maximum force that you can onto the bike at all times. It's about sustaining your force consistently over your race and then having, and one of the fascinating things about rowing as a team sport is that then you have to have the, the biggest rowing events. It's 12, 12 man crew, I don't 12, know. 12 person crew, <laughs> something like that. And it, it's eight or 12. And I think there's might be eight and 12, but you've got basically say you're doing a 2000 meter race, which is a typical length for rowing. And even the two of us, if we were doing a tandem row, you need to have a strategy of, okay, we're going to be going at 60% for the first thousand meters. Then we're going to go up to 80 and then we're going to sprint the last 200 or whatever it might be. Cause you see this strategy at play in the Olympics yeah. and, or just in rowing in general, but all of these different elements and like every, every single aspect of this was tracked like to the point where they literally had a graph of what is your optimum position in terms of your stress response? Because you don't want to be so stressed out because that'll actually damage your performance. Yeah. You have to be at this medium stress where you're, where the adrenaline is maximizing your output, but not clouding your judgment, basically. And it was fascinating to look at this paper because it was like, I, I could, I could describe, there were flow charts or diagrams literally of like, this is the position of your oar as it moves through your stroke. Like Ooh. it was nuts. The amount of stuff that has been studied in this sport. What's a white paper? A white paper is like a research paper. Okay. Um, sometimes we'll say like white literature, or gray literature, gray literature is more stuff that like, you know, um, like a, like a regular, you might, you might find on like 
LiveScience.org or something okay. like that, where like a news article, those sorts of things. Whereas like white papers are like a researcher has sat down and done a study. Okay. And it's more like original research as opposed it, to. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. Primary research, original exactly. research. Yeah. A novel research, whatever okay. you maybe want to call it. Mm-hmm. I didn't know what that term meant. So I was like, yeah. yeah. It's more something that I started using in my current job than I never really used before. Okay. And it's just something I've gotten very used to using now. So yeah. you're right. It's, it's a research paper is the better term for it. But that, uh, that whole, like, the technique changing and, and not wanting to go at your max, like, thing, you can see that with cycling, with mm-hmm. as you climb a mountain, you're never going to be in your highest gear. Like, you yeah. might be able to turn the pedals, but you need to do this for a mountain. So <laughs> you're yeah. going to find the efficient way uh, to do it. And you can see the difference in, like, there's a lot of difference between the climber uh, cyclist and the sprinter cyclist, but in, like, their body types and, and the weight that they're carrying. But a sprinter is used to going to a high gear and pushing as hard as they can on the pedals to go as fast as they can. Whereas a climber is used to spinning more, right? Like living in that lower gear. And then they have carbon fiber bikes too. Like carbon fiber, I feel like have revolutionized oh, yeah. a lot of stuff. And this whole, uh, the, the wearable tech, I had a, came across a really good quote for this one. It was uh, Munir Zok. I may not be saying that right, that they are the director of technology and innovation for the U.S. Olympic Commission. And they claim that sport technology is so advanced, it can create a digital code for winning a gold gold medal. And it's so true, especially like, like you're talking about all this, like these, you have to be exactly like this to maximize your efficiency in the boat or you're not going to win because Mm -hmm. they, the, your competitors over there might have, might be more perfect than you. I've heard of cyclists that will do a training session in a wind tunnel, like a car development wind tunnel with book time in it. And they will literally practice. And and sometimes the teams will practice, yeah. right? Because cycling is actually a team event in a lot of the sports. It's, yeah. it's typically an individual award, but it's... But like the tour and stuff, the Tour yeah, de France. Yeah, exactly. Any, any of the big tours, really. Well, and even like to the point where if you compete in the Olympic cycling events, especially the distance events, there will often be... You will have teammates. You'll yeah, have yeah. like the Canadian contingent of people yeah. competing in the triathlon or whatever. Yeah. And they'll have a strategy together as a team and obviously yeah. it'll still and a lot of times those a team strategy is in service of the best individual on your team yeah yeah, yeah. so for so every uh you know every biker on the tour de france they're in a big team but oftentimes it's about who on this team is most likely to win or place this leg because the cool thing about yeah. tour de france is that not all the legs are the same yeah, right it's like, 21 days yeah exactly. oh jeez yeah you can <laughs> you can really see in the Tour de France, this this way that they build the the teams depending on who their main their main guy is, right? Yeah. Like if they have if they're a team with really, really strong sprinters, then they are gonna make sure that they have three or four really, really good what they're called lead out guys. So these are people as you start getting close to the line, they'll all be like in front of the the really good sprinter so that they can start going as fast as they can. And then the really good sprinters at the back of this line, right? Like hiding in the aerodynamic slipstream. And so- And this is the, why they use the the air tunnel to practice this. Yeah. So they can practice literally how do you maximize the, or minimize the air resistance that that last person is feeling and maximize the the slipstream that you're creating. Yeah. And and then like the, the guys in front start peeling off as you get closer and they've perfected like, when do I peel off for this specific course that I'm on? Like, is there a turn near the end? When can the when can the 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 leads the the best sprinter basically when is going to be the best time for them to go out and not like burn themselves out sprinting as hard as they can? But you see this on the mountains too. You'll have oh no, I watched the tour every summer as a kid, but I can't remember the uh the, just like the team guys right? Like they they'll be leading the best mountain climber up the mountain, and 
so that they can start getting more exhausted first. And then they peel off. And sometimes when you see these people peel off so that their their best climber can go off the front. And the best climber is the best climber for a reason. But they would never get there without a team of really good climbers with them. And when the really like when their teammate climbers peel off, sometimes they almost fall off their bikes because they've been pushing so hard to like get this other the good climber in a in the optimal position that they just like they're just like so done because they've they've worked to be as as efficient as possible and they still have to finish the race but they don't have to win so they can take their time. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, and so the technology, the the information that's collected about athletes yeah. now, the quantity of it is wild, and the databases <laughs> that are being created, it really is. You could like it, it absolutely is because we're talking about like again, we were saying like some of these sports are getting time to the tens of a thousand, tens of thousandths of a second. Yeah, and so every minuscule competitive advantage, the hair out of place, the pimple on your nose, sort of thing, can yeah. be the difference between. A gold medal and a silver medal, or even in extreme situations, a gold medal and not placing. Oh, like yeah. it's crazy. Some of these yeah. sports you'll see in the Olympics of the next ten days, like uh, fourteen days, is that like there will be fourth place finishers who are not even a full second behind. Well, especially in the sprinting sports, it isn't even a full second. Yeah. It's going to be split seconds. Yeah. Um, but I'm glad that we were kind of we we kind of were on this topic of cycling because ah. I think it you, you cannot. And I think everybody who's listening is probably in their mind like mm. screaming about cycling. Like, um, and it's true because like you, you cannot talk about cycling without talking about doping. And that's yeah. sort of where we wanted to go next anyway. What a good segue. Yeah. Well, perfect. It's like we planned it. Um, <laughs> And obviously, I think most people are probably pretty aware of the whole Lance Armstrong controversy and, you Lord know. Landis, Lance Armstrong. Yeah, exactly. And and the, the damage that that did to the sport. And I think a lot of people are probably aware of the documentary Icarus as well and yeah. the, uh, the Russian doping scandal, which is sort of mainly what the documentary Icarus is about, right? He sort of starts this exploration of he literally wants to prove if, he, he wants to do a documentary where he's a like an amateur cyclist yeah. and he wants to show that if you dope, you will get this massive increase in performance. And if he can get away with it. Right. Sorry. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Cause so. he's in this compet he's on this amateur circuit where that has these competitive races, but that are not the tour de France, but they're on similar. A lot of them are on similar routes and things like that. And yeah, he, and it's not a frequently drug tested sport, but apparently everybody in this amateur, um, league is sort of doping of some sort or whatever and so yeah he wanted to see if he could get away with it and like so he starts talking to this russian yeah. uh like a russian scientist who works with the like russian anti-doping federation yeah and it just spirals out and eventually this guy reveals that the russians have been doping and hiding all the tests and like changing all the tests and yeah. uh so this this story really really changes from the story that this person wanted to tell mm -hmm. with like personal doping and cycling yeah he, he stumbles upon the story of the decade, basically. Yeah. <laughs> and he, but but it becomes this very interesting exploration of doping in sport and yeah. then specifically what, what was behind the controversy of the Russian doping scandal. Mm -hmm. But doping in sport has been around for thousands of years, yeah. literally. Some of the earliest records of performance enhancement in sport is like from 800 BC or BCE to be scientifically accurate uh -huh. about it. Um, and we're talking about, you know, they're taking herbs and mushrooms and who knows what to try to give themselves competitive edge. 
uh, over, and these are like Roman gladiators and Greek athletes. So this is like yeah. the OG Olympics. Um, OG. And then it kind of came back into the popular mindset in like the early 1900s. So it was something that was like 1928, I believe, that the first, that the like WADA, the World Organization. World the, Anti-Doping Agency. Thank you. Sorry, 1968 was when the World Dope Anti-Doping Agency was formed. And it was really that it was in the 1920s that there were the first international rules against doping. But it's been something that we've been aware of in sport for a really, really long time. And I think a lot of people, when they think about doping in sport, and I mean, I can again bring up baseball because it was a huge issue in baseball in the 90s. But a lot of people, when they think about doping, they think about that type of doping. They think about steroid use, anabolic steroids to become stronger. Uh, but the interesting thing is that doping, and, and if you've seen the Icarus documentary, you yeah. kind of know about this, or if you know about how cycling doping especially works, yeah. you know that like, it's not always about being stronger. Just like we were saying, it's not always about increasing your maximum output, but changing elements of your comp- of how you compete that really becomes performance enhancement. Yeah. Um, and before we go too down this road of the the sort of the doping and the issues in doping is like we wanted to kind of talk about this topic from two lenses essentially is that there there are natural and there are unnatural competitive advantages in sport. Yes. And we talked a little bit about some of those natural advantages and we're going to a bit further because there's been a lot of stuff that's come out about this this year leading up to Japan and Tokyo. But the the reason I think personally, from a personal standpoint, like my opinion of why these new controversies have come up is because the doping testing has gotten so, and our technology has gotten so developed and our testing rate regimen is so extreme mm-hmm. that we are now detecting things that 50 years ago we weren't even sniffing at, really. Yeah, and whenever we're looking at like the, dope, the, the anti-doping tests and things that they're running is because doping is always ahead of catching in yeah right they're always going to be coming up with new techniques and new ways to get different things into your system and ways to try to disguise it to make it look natural so the line between what is natural and what is not and how do you even determine that anymore how do you determine what's a natural versus an unfair advantage is really really snowballed oh uh, yeah absolutely (laughs) so there's there's tons of different types of doping and just to kind of go over a few of them just to kind of color this conversation right so there's obviously again these Um, and this will come up again. So these androgenic elements or what are often referred to as anabolic steroids, but they're not just steroids, which are, um, steroids are just like chemicals in your body. They're hormones. Essentially our bodies produce many steroids naturally. Uh, but even like testosterone is like a steroid. It's got the steroid shape in it. Uh, but it's these types of things getting injected into your body that generally it's increased strength. They let you train harder and they'll often help you recover. Yes. Um, then there's things like stimulants, which for certain sports can be incredibly effective, right? Because stimulants are going to, they're going to increase your alertness, your focus, they're going to, re- and they're going to reduce your fatigue. And a lot of them uh, lead to increased blood flow. Fun fact, the uh, Nazi soldiers were on meth. Yeah. Uh, because it made that they were able to march for days and days. And there's accounts of people thinking like the Nazis were these super soldiers. Nope. On meth. Yeah. And uh, in, in fact, Just like, as side it, well, in fact, like Hitler was famously addicted to meth, uh, methamphetamines. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it, it's true. And it, it was true. They would literally give them like it was like meth in like a candy bar or something. It was like in a it was in mints they would give to like the SS soldiers. And it would it would jack yeah, them up. But then they started to realize that like, 
oh, <laughs> some of these some of these soldiers who are jacked up on this all of the time are starting to go through like psychosis and yeah, stuff the, like the that. The prolonged effects of it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, uh, yeah, it's a super interesting aside. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, in, in a different stimulant. Uh, joke because that's all i know uh there's a i think robin williams has a joke about baseball players using cocaine oh yeah, yeah and yeah. like uh not understanding why a baseball player would use cocaine <laughs> and jokes about like the white lines along the side of the baseball diamond oh, and, like how do you expect lines. me not to use it when yeah. there's this big white line yeah look it up robin williams baseball jokes well there are still <laughs> there are baseball players that still play with a dip in their mouth, like of chewing tobacco. Sometimes the slang for it is a dip. Okay. And they'll have a big honking thing of chewing tobacco in their lips. It's something the sport, it, it doesn't, it's not strictly forbidden. It's something that the sport kind of frowns upon because a lot of these, ath- and, and a lot of these athletes are, um, they are, you know, they're role models to young kids. Mm-hmm. So young kids are seeing them do it and they're replicating them and things like that. But you used to be able to smoke in the dugouts. It wasn't like there were there were literally baseball players who would go and they would hit and then they would come back in the dugout and they would light a cigar. I feel like I've seen pictures of Babe Ruth doing that. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, now that's a hundred years ago that yeah. Babe Ruth played, but still. And but it's it's really interesting. And so tons of different sports. There's even to the point where like you can use like diuretics, which are like, you know, your uh um what's the word I'm looking for? Col- colonoscopy meds, your uh yeah. Laxatives. Yeah, your laxatives. <laughs> um, and people are using that because uh, sometimes it can help you make weight if you're a fighter, right? Yeah. You have to be in a particular weight class. Yeah. And you but, always want to be the biggest of yeah. your weight class, not the smallest. So mm-hmm. fighters will typically, they'll like sign up for a weight class that's below their natural weight. Yeah. And then they cut. So they they really, they increase cardio, they decrease uh, food, and they decrease water the day or two before. So yeah. that they, and that's why when you see pictures of fighters on weigh-in day, they look cut they look like unnaturally cut and then the day of the fight which like the next day they look like normal people again because they drank water yeah because you want to be the biggest in this in the weight class not in the middle or the smallest Mm -hmm. and even all the way to right like we were you were joking about narcotics right like cocaine but yeah things like different painkillers especially certain really powerful analgesics there's been a number of things about cannabis in sport in the last Mm -hmm. number of years especially as uh, cannabis has reached sort of uh, legalization in a lot of different places. Prohibition on cannabis has ended yeah. uh, in some jurisdictions. The big one for cycling that com- comes up a lot are some of these peptide hormones, so things yeah. like erythroprotein. EPO. Yeah, and those are things that are going to increase, again, your bulk, your strength, but big, big not, for... Not bulk as much. Not as much, Cyclists yeah. tend to need to be pretty lean, mm-hmm. but they, they increase the oxygen in your blood, right? They Yeah, like, your red s- blood cell count goes up. Yeah, yeah or like... They, they take blood out of a cyclist, like, way advanced, like, way ahead of time. And then just before race day, they'll inject that blood back into them so they have more red yeah. blood cells in their system. Now, that's more blood doping. Blood doping, which yeah. Is, yeah, so, which is a slightly different. And blood doping has these, like, crazy risks, too. Like, it can mm. lead to, like, kidney failure and Goodness. blood clots and all this stuff. Um, and then the big one that you may have heard about, too, is, like, HGH, or human yeah. growth hormone, which is a peptide hormone. And it literally, it's... It's literally the like the chemical that your body starts to release when you go through puberty, and it makes you grow. Uh, and so people can take HGH and 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 grow. Your growth plates are um, have calcified, so you can't grow any taller. But you're going to build way more muscle mass. You can put on weight. It's it's so much easier to do those things. You hear HGH a lot in body bodybuilding. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then all the way you can get to like the beta blockers, which are. Often drugs that are used for people that suffer from extreme stress disorders, but a beta block or even like heart problems that just yeah. require you to keep your heart rate low, but a beta blocker like 
for a sport like archery or, or, yeah, or, or, or sport or, shooting, yeah. yeah, where you have to focus and your hands have to be steady, that, that's a huge advantage and it's a chemical yeah. advantage. Um, so it ju- this is all just to say that like there is basically there's this this um, charcuterie board, this smorgasbord <laughs> of doping methods and different sports need different types of doping. Yeah. Uh, to need, but you <laughs> like know, the, or they've developed utilize. them based on like what they need, yeah. right? Like what, what, what does the sport demand? Like, do, do you need your hands to be steady, or do you need bigger muscles, or do you, do you need, need to be more, leaner, more blood flow, more endurance? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so it's not a one size fits all, and that's what makes sometimes the detection of doping so difficult. Uh, and this is really like the the science behind like how doping is detected is is fascinating from a chemistry standpoint. And so Sarah, unfortunately, is going to have to kind of listen for a minute here. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good. This is a this is one of those times where Davis has to explain it and make sure that I understand. And hopefully, that means that all of you will understand. <laughs> it's like crypto all over again. Yeah. So the way that. Testing for doping is done in the Olympics is that, so if Sarah was competing as a gymnast, ah. all of the athletes, especially oh, in the- Oh, my Olymp- little dream. <laughs> <laughs> and, and especially in the Olympics, like everybody's tested. Everybody, a sample is taken from every athlete. So yeah. Sarah would be asked to pee in a cup or we'd draw some blood or something of that nature would happen. And we would collect basically a bunch of metabolites from Sarah. Then that sample will be split. So it's called like a tandem sample system or split sample system. And basically what it means is we take that exact same vial of blood or vial of urine and we split it into two. We call it, we have A and B. And this is sort of where the Russian doping scandal comes in. Um, Because they were basically changing the B samples, which are kind of held in storage as like a check. Anyway, I I don't really remember all the specific details, so I don't want to go into it. But yeah, the idea that you have these, you take the sample and you split it. So you have one you can test now and one you save. And if there's any issue with the first, you can test uh, the other one, right? Yeah. And a lot of times, too, it's that, okay, we might detect something in sample A and then want to test to confirm it in sample B, but also run a more specific test for one particular metabolite. Right. Because what's happening is that, so in your pee, as you can probably imagine, there's a ton of different stuff. There's pee and there's also all of these waste products that you've been producing and things like that. Same thing with your blood. Everybody knows, you know, you got your red blood cells, you got your white blood cells, you got your plasmas, you got your platelets, you got all this stuff. Um, and it's all these different chemicals that your body is producing, the metabolites, which are, you know, so your body starts to break down food or chemicals that you're given, like drugs, they turn into what we call metabolites. Some of those metabolites are excreted after some time. Some of them are used throughout the body and then excreted. It's all sorts of different stuff. And so basically there are tons of different chemicals in these things and you have to separate them out. So analytical chemistry has come a really, really long way. Um, just like all the sports. Just like all the sports. <laughs> there are some crazy technologies out there for analytics. They're super cool. But a lot of what they use is like, it'll be joint chromatography and what's often called mass spectrometry. So chromatography is like, if you've ever done this classic experiment with carnations, you buy some carnations. It even works with celery. It too. works very of, well with celery. A lot of people do it with celery. I know what you're talking about. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you take the carnations, you put them in water with food coloring in it. You come back, it's like a day later or something like that. And the carnations will now, carnations are famously white, and then they will take on the color of the food coloring because it's the chromatographic effect of the water being drawn up, the xylem of the plant, and getting into the leaves. If you want to try this at home and you have celery, pick celery with uh, leaves on top. Yes. So like one of the inner ones. Uh, And then pick food coloring that's not green. 
Reds and purples work really well. Yeah. It's a super cool experiment. If you've yeah. never done it, try it. it. It's super cool and it really shows this, like how this works. And send us your pictures if you do. <laughs> yeah, please. <laughs> so chemistry has taken advantage of this because basically what you can do is you can have a solvent, a solution. It, this is liquid chromatography where you can take, it's often done with uh, in like first year chemistry labs, you often do it with like a leaf. You take a leaf of a plant, you break it down and you try and you extract the chlorophyll and the pigments that are in the chlorophyll. Ah. And so then you take a little droplet of your extract of the leaf and you put it on a special piece of paper and then you dip your paper in a special solvent and you have to do all this testing. But basically what happens is the, the solvent runs up the paper and it it's going to start to spread this dye, this... Um, your the extract, extract, the extract yeah. that you've put on your paper, and it's going to start to spread it out because not all of the elements, the chemicals, the molecules that are in that pigment are going to want to separate out at the same space, same speed. Some of them are going to be different sizes. Some of them are going to have what we call more, they're going to be more polar than others. So they're going to have a charge in one location or they're going to be non-polar, which means they don't have any charge or the charge is equal all the way across. So things like oil, gasoline, those are non-polar. It's why they float on water. Ah. Whereas water is polar, which is right. why it sometimes we use it for cleaning a lot of stuff because it help, it can get rid of a lot of different things other than grease. That's why you have to use soap and stuff like that. But anyway, so you separate the components that are in your extract and you can basically, and then you can test those things individually. So on a large scale, what happens is you do, with liquid chromatography, you pushing something through a column and it's filled with beads that have like really, really tiny microscopic beads, silicon beads with stuff on them that confer some type of resistance to certain types of molecules that you're pushing through the column. So then you're pushing this whole sample, so Sarah's urine or whatever, through the, through the chromatographic column and you're separating out certain elements. So there's certain things that we know is in everybody's pee that we don't care about, like the urea. So we might want to have those come out at a certain amount, but we want to separate all these things out. And then in a lab, you can actually collect these things kind of one at a time. It's kind of tricky because you've got to kind of time it out and it's hard to do. Um, it takes a lot of testing and back and forth and understanding of retention times and things like that. Lots of standing in a white lab coat with your goggles staring at the beaker. Absolutely. <laughs> lot of if you thought titration was bad, try this. No, <laughs> it's super cool. It's a fascinating technique. And, and, and then you can test them using different tests. But then what a lot of these things will do is that they will then couple this technology so as your separated extract is coming out of the chromatography column it will go into call what's called a mass spectrometer spectrometer so if you've ever been to the airport have yes. you ever been to the airport and they swabbed your hands with that thing uh you're probably too innocent looking they, you've probably never been screened they, randomly uh, they, quote unquote randomly yeah they've uh they've taken my computer a couple times and swabbed I, it right yeah because i have my computer it's a MacBook, but it's in a. It has a sticker on it, and it's in a case. Right. And whenever I take it through the airport, they they're like, "What is this?" I'm like, "It's a Mac." Come so on. They take the case off, and they have to they swab it, and they're like, yeah. "I guess you're fine." And you're like, "Yeah, just give me my computer." Yeah. Well, before this technology, they used to like take the battery. Like yeah. MacBooks now are all one big piece. Yeah, you can't take them. Anymore. <laughs> but they used to take the battery out of your laptop, or they make you power it on and off because they used to want to check to see if you had replaced all the internal components of the laptop with cocaine or explosives. Or is explosives. often what they're testing for. But yeah. You're right. Drugs or, or, mm -hmm. or explosives. And... Bridget Jones 2, guys. <laughs> Not a laptop, but... There you go. There's your movie reference. <laughs> but uh, they swab... You may have had your hand swabbed or your stuff swabbed or your suitcase swabbed. And then they put it in this little blue machine. 
And then it's it says something to them, and it'll turn up red or turn up green, and they'll let you go, or they ask you a bunch of questions. It happened to my dad once. He had handled a bunch of paint in a garage, and it had, like, oh. lead in the base, and it <laughs> came up on the test or whatever because it's some sort of, you know, controlled substance. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. But, but what that device is is, like, a super, super, super simplified mass spec. Okay. And it's only being used to detect a few things. But a mass spec, what it's doing is you are ionizing your sample, which means you're taking it and you're basically like turning it into a gaseous form, essentially, or, or you know, turning it into the ions, the base ions of what it is. And then you are, there's a few different techniques for how this works, but you are shooting it down a corridor, often lined with magnets that are going to pull off so if, if they're magnets that have certain charges, they're going to pull off certain molecules. And because you're shooting, you got to imagine like, imagine you're throwing a whole bunch of balls down a corridor and some of them are going to get attracted to the walls of the corridor. But some of those balls are bigger, smaller, heavier, lighter, all those sorts of things. There's a huge variation, right? So if you were to think about, you grab a fistful of marbles, but all the marbles are slightly different. There's a few repeats, obviously, but they're all different sizes. And they're all different weights. And you throw them down this hallway. Some of the marbles are going to travel further than other marbles yeah. because you've only got so much force. You're getting all the same force. And, and so some of them are going to travel further. Some of them are going to get attracted to the wall at different points. The wall is going to, you know, they're going to attract them more or less. And literally what it's going to do is it's going to separate out and tell you, okay, you have an, you have a molecule at this specific molecular weight, this next molecular weight, you have no molecules, then you have another one. So it's literally every molecular weight ion that can be created from your sample can be tracked in a mass spec. Is this where you see it's like a graph and it's a bunch of like, uh, it, it looks almost like a bar chart. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it'll be a bunch of just like straight lines, right? Yeah, yeah. And, and so and like a, a gap here and then like a bunch more and then a gap there. Exa okay. Exactly. And so it's, it's similar to a lot of different spectrographic techniques. You are literally having these things like hit and produce a signal and then it's saying you have a molecular weight object here. You have something here, you have something here, you have something here. And then based on, you know, certain knowledge and things like that, you can determine what those things are. Um, but it's a super fascinating technology and it's incredibly sensitive. Yeah. So you can detect yeah. things to the picogram, which is like oh, 10 wow. to the negative 12 or something like that. Um, <laughs> so little. It is. And so it is incredibly sensitive, but that's what they are looking for in some of these doping tests, these tiny, tiny metabolites. And this is one of the things too, is that we understand a lot about human physiology, but there is a ton about metabolism that we just have no clue about because we don't know how some of these different molecules are converted into different molecules in the body. So sometimes you might be taking anabolic steroid A, but what I'm looking for in the test is not proof of anabolic, it's not here's a little bit of anabolic steroid A that got through Sarah's bloodstream into her urine or whatever it might yeah. be. It's here is a metabolite that is indicative of your body having processed yeah. steroid A. And it could have been, for some of these steroids, that could have been months ago that yeah. you were using it. Because that's how a lot of people are getting around the doping testing. They're using diuretics and time to flush these metabolites out of their body and get them below detectable levels. And this is this arms race back and forth. Um, but that's sort of how this doping testing is done. And it's why they can detect like, these insanely small amounts of metabolite in someone's bloodstream or in a sample from them. And they have to because if you're smart at doping, if you've gone to an elite level, there's probably someone helping you dope yeah. or someone encouraging you to dope. Uh, and 
they're not going to do it in a way that means that the actual doping substance is still in your system when you're going to get tested for it, right? Mm-hmm. There's there's going to be all these ways around it because, like we said, testing is always behind the actual doping technology. So yeah. testing has to be for, okay, well, your body might break this down after this amount of time. Like I heard like a long time ago, they would like test hair. And if you like test yeah. hair, you can see like if you did diff- certain drugs and stuff like that, right? Yeah. Which I don't understand how it works, but that's the thing. Yeah, it shows up like in the protein or something of your hair, like you can see it in the keratin or whatever. I don't know exactly how the test works. But people's um, hair is typically long, right? And, or it doesn't grow that fast. Yeah. So you can like test a while, like a ways back, depending on how and long it, your hair is. And it may be a very similar, it's probably not so much like trees, like rings on a tree, yeah. as much as it is like you take a hair, you vaporize that sample, oh. you run it through a mass spec, and you can pick up some of these same gotcha. metabolites. Uh, that's what I would assume. But I mean, I don't do this type of testing. I just know <laughs> how the... The, the technology actually works behind it. But between these, so basically they're doing two different, a lot of these places that are doing this test are doing two different tests. They're doing one with liquid chromatography, one with gas chromatography, which is the exact same principle except your sample starts as a gas or you okay. vaporize it into a gas. Okay. Uh, and then you run it through a column, same sort of thing. Things get separated, they come out at different times, and then you shoot them through a mass spec. But they're doing these two different techniques because one is a little bit better at detecting polar molecules, the other is for nonpolar. And between the two of them, they're detecting something like 400 different compounds. Wow. Um, And the test itself on a single sample takes about 10 minutes, but a sample preparation batch takes about eight hours, and then the tests have to be run overnight. And it's something like there are, there was, I think it was something there were only like 270,000 samples that were tested in like 2018 or something and it's believed that there are probably that many athletes professional elite athletes out there that are doping and they're only able to get through about you know and so that's why some of these the russian doping scandal they didn't find out about the cheating they had been doing in sochi until rio because it took so long for some of these tests to get to the forefront and then for the pattern to be detected was an even bigger thing yeah and it really was the i forget the name of the the guy in icarus the russian Mm -hmm. yeah Gregor. Uh, so the g uh but it was like him deciding to if he had this out now he could get to america he could become a whistleblower in a bit more of a safe fashion than doing so in russia where wow that's not allowed yeah um But part of the problem and part of the reason that something like this can proliferate in the way that it does, we already kind of mentioned the IOC being somewhat corrupt. And part of this is WADA was created by the IOC and receives 50% of their funding from the IOC. But they are severely understaffed. I think WADA only has, it's like 130 staff or something or less than that. And only seven of them are set for like global doping testing Mm. so they really really rely on the state anti-doping agencies uh around the world in these different countries to to do the testing and to provide the information so it's not like like wada is they have a huge responsibility but like very little actual ability to do so and then you have people who are in charge of wada who were or are active ioc members so it really becomes this it's just all very very complicated and like insular it, yeah and insular and it's think about it, like it's very bad for the olympics i guess to incestuous n- maybe yeah <laughs> it's a cesspool uh it's like it's <laughs> i show that in movies all the time um but i guess it's it would be very bad for the ioc like they let 
uh, Russian athletes compete in Sochi, right? Yeah. Because they were like, oh, but it wasn't the athletes. It was the country. It was this, well, in, right? Well, in like, Sochi, they didn't even know. And, and Sochi sorry, in was Rio. in Russia. Yeah, right, in, in Rio. Rio. Yeah. In Rio, they let these athletes compete yeah. who had tested positive in Sochi. And they let other Russian athletes compete because they were like, we don't want to punish the athletes. It was the country. It was the system. It wasn't them. Like, why should we punish them? Yeah. But... Russia is huge in the Olympics. Like, think it's always the the Russia US medal medal count, right? Like the and China. Like that's always what we're checking. So if one of those countries were to drop out, then the competition's not going to be as good. No one's going to believe the results because they're going to be like, well, this country wasn't there. So how can you say that you won? Yeah. And the viewership is probably going to go down. And then IOC and Olympic funding could go down. And if there's bribes, then that's going to impact decision. So it's it's something that yes, we want sports to be to be pure, but then there's all of this behind the scenes, and we also demand bigger, better, faster, stronger. Yeah. All of the time as a society, we're always we're always looking for, oh well, you did the same thing that that person did last year. That's not very exciting, right? So there's there's all these pressures on the athletes, and then I mean, why do you think they start doping? Is because there's all this pressure to be perfect or to be the best or just to be able to compete in some sports, like when I was going to say, yeah, yeah, like when Lance Armstrong finally admitted to using, was it blood doping or EPO? Was he had done both. <clears throat> yeah, he was in it for so long, yeah. but he finally came out and he was like, "I did it," but everybody did it. So it's like they stripped him of his titles, but like I don't think they went. The guy who always came second to Lance was Jan Ulrich, and I don't think they went to Ulrich and retested all of his stuff or like mm-hmm. really pressured him. But if everyone was doing it, he was doing it too because he was second best, right? So yeah. like. So you get a common these, belief in cycling for sure. Yeah. yeah. And so you get into these like weird things where, it, but you don't want to like have to demand of your athletes that they dope in order to compete. But if that's what the sport is demanding, it, it's just, it's a very like, like spiral kind of conversation yeah. and argument. Like it's, it's very hard to, to find where like the, the moral and ethical lands here because there's so much, there's so much history in this now too. Oh, absolutely. And this is like the thing too with, now that there is so much of this testing that's being done is just like we were talking about with the biomechanics and the sports science and the tracking of data for training of athletes and things like that has gotten so extreme that you have these databases of information that you could yeah, construct an Olympic training regimen from this information. It's the same sort of thing with doping is now we have these profiles of athletes and we are measuring all of these different things like you think about how sensitive some people have gotten about like the idea of like a vaccine passport or like certain types of things like imagine being one of these professional athletes and literally like like having to give up your own medical privacy in order to compete and i mean unfortunately part of this has come out of necessity because there has been so much doping and it creates an uneven playing playing field and then it encourages people to cheat and it ruins the sanctity of the sport and we've seen in a number of professional sports how damaging these types of scandals can be for the sport like lance armstrong was a massive figurehead for cycling even before, like, you know, even before the, the doping scandal, there had been a number of allegations that had followed him for a number of years about it. But I would just say, I would say that the, the popularity, the popularity of cycling took a massive hit when, it, when Lance Armstrong um, was finally uncovered as a cheater. Especially in the States. Because cycling, cycling is way huger in Europe. Uh, huger. Way, way, way huger. bigger. <laughs> it's a science podcast, not an English podcast. <laughs> but like, it's way more popular in Europe. And then when Lance started winning everything, then it got... It got really popular in the States. And like I said, I watched it every year as a kid. 
But mm. after, I mean, after Lance Armstrong left the sport, even before it was uncovered, my family kind of started falling off. But I kept watching it. But then, then, then Floyd Landis came up and everyone was excited. And then he got caught. And then it was like, oh, is this still a problem? And then you're watching and like, the for a couple of years there was this like vacancy almost because it wasn't only Lance that got hit right it was all these other big names too so yeah. it really it really impacted cycling absolutely yeah. and it's same thing with baseball with the the steroids yeah. were hugely damaging to the sport of baseball because it was coming at a time when the power like power hitting in baseball was mm-hmm. big like home runs were really big there were tons of home runs there were people hitting you know 50 60 home runs in a year which had been almost unheard of but then it came out that like so many of these guys and not even some of the greatest out there but a lot of them were, were using these types of steroids and it was just so damaging and the sport is only just now recovering from it because it's only now that a lot that most of that old bastion of players that were caught up in some of these scandals is no longer in the game and even to the point where in 2017 the Astros were caught cheating not through the use of drugs but they were using video technology to right. what's called steal signs from the other team so they knew which pitches were coming which is something you can do on the field, but they had a system with a camera in center field and all this stuff. And they won the world series that year. And it's pretty well known that they were cheating in that series, in the, the final series of the season. And people are, and it, and it was damaging to the sport. It, it, there's no way around it. Right. Um, but what's happened with these databases now is now there's this, we are understanding certain levels of metabolism or things that are in our bodies. We have way more information about that now than we did 30 years ago. Yeah. But, well, I mean, it's not even comparable. It's night and day. Yeah. Uh, but we were talking a lot about, like, there is, there's always going to be a natural advantage in sport. Yeah. You know, I was making a joke earlier. I'm a big gangly dude. There's almost no way I would have been a, could have become a high-level gymnast. I mean, even if I had trained from two years old. Because it's just, I'm not the body type for it. I don't have that natural advantage. Gymnastics might have, might have stunted your growth. Oh, it's, fair it's, enough. That's true. That. <laughs> That's very true. But, but yeah, you're naturally taller, right? So it, mm-hmm. yeah. A bigger body type. I'm just, I, where my musculature is and all these things. But there are lots of these types of things yeah. that make people more, um, attuned to a certain sport, to a certain set of skills. Um, a big one that I always, uh, that I, that came up a lot in my undergrad was, fast twitch muscle versus slow twitch muscle and distance runners versus sprinters. So sprinter. So most of us have like a 50 ish split between the two. Um, So fast twitch muscles are, if you think about the muscles in your legs, all the little fibers, fast twitch muscles are able to respond very quickly and output a whole bunch of power, but they get tired. They're not very good at processing like the lactic acids and the wastes and things like that. Not endurance. Exactly. Whereas your slow twitch muscles, they're not as explosive but they're much better at endurance, about processing. They produce less lactic acid, and they they kind of break it down faster. They, they metabolize it better. You can think about this with sharks. Sharks will have <laughs> passage and slow twitch. So the slow twitch would be slow twitch would be what they use to swim long distances. Like a lot of them, a, a number of shark species will be like cross oceanic journeys and things. But then, in order to catch prey, they need that fast twitch. Yeah, right? yeah, and so. A lot of people will have some level of an even-ish split. But when you look at a elite, top-of-the-world sprinter... Like Usain Bolt. Exactly. They're going to have like 90% 
plus potentially even, but like most of their muscle fibers are going to be fast twitch fibers. That's why you don't see Usain Bolt run the 10K <laughs> because it's not what his body is built for. And then obviously you specialize and you're training for a specific thing and all that stuff, but that's what makes you better in that area. Exactly. And Usain Bolt is actually a really interesting example because he's really tall for a sprinter, yep. which it gives him, he's able to take longer strides, but he's so much taller than the competition. So you're like, okay, there must be something about sprinting that selects for someone shorter, but it's because he has, like, even even for sprinters, he has an abnormally high amount of fast twitch muscle mm -hmm. that he's yeah. able to compete and be that much taller. And then his long legs give him an additional advantage over that. Yeah. And whereas, yeah, again, and then you've got your, your endurance athletes, they're going to have way more... Uh, slow twitch muscle than fast twitch muscle. The, the proportions are going to be completely opposite. And you can even see this in their body types, right? Yeah. Again, a training difference, but you look at a Olympic marathoner and a distance runner versus the body of an Olympic short distance track, yeah. like it, there's, there's no comparing them really. Yeah. Like it's two completely different builds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You look at a, uh, a cyclist who's trained mostly to be a mountain climber, mm -hmm. they're typically very lean They'll have, all cyclists have big legs, but they're typically like very lean. They have very small upper bodies. A sprinter cyclist is like, has a much bigger upper body because they have to pull on the handlebars and get themselves across the line. Mm -hmm. Or like we talked about with the gymnast, right? Like male gymnasts, especially, and female gymnasts have a ton of upper body strength too, but you just see it. Male gymnasts are just this V shape. Um, and it's because like you, you build up your leg muscles kind of as you go, but gymnast, like our bodies are not designed to walk on our hands mm -hmm. the way, like their legs. So shoulders end up having to do the work of hips. So you have to, you have to build up your muscles in a different sort of way. And you end up with this different sort of body type. Mm -hmm. And so there's all in every sport, there are natural advantages. Like you said, with the NBA, you know, what if you, were, if you were seven <laughs> feet tall, someone's probably approached you to play basketball. Yeah. yeah. If, if you're tall and like you went through high school and there was a basketball team, someone probably asked you. Yeah. And you probably played on it. Even if you were not <laughs> yeah, you a technic, <laughs> even if you're not a technically skilled basketball player, the height advantage in basketball and basketball is of course the, the perfect example that yeah. the case study that comes up because it has literally selected for height. So basketball, volleyball. Yeah. Volleyball yeah. as well. Right. Um, and, and it's just this really visible one where even in basketball too, something that people don't always think about is having abnormally large hands for your size yeah. means, uh, so there's a famous basketball player, Rajon Rondo, who's a point guard and he's a bit smaller, but he has some of the biggest hands and he can just grip like the way he can grip the ball. And he has this great handle and they call it right. Cause he can yeah. control the ball really well. So there are in every sport, there are going to be things that are going to, um, give you a natural advantage over your competitors, give you a leg up, whatever it might yeah. be. Some of them are really visible, right? <laughs> like being left-handed in baseball or having really good eyesight. I guess that's maybe not as visible, but like, or things that are invisible. Like yeah. I can't look at Sarah and say, well, you've got 30% fast twitch muscle and 70% slow twitch muscle. Like that's not how it works. Yeah. But you can look at someone and be like, oh, you have really long limbs. You might be a really good striker because you can hit them from farther away than they can hit you. Yeah, it's true. Like yeah, if, you're, if you're in boxing or... In boxing, they always arts. measure reach, which, yeah the, yeah, the the length from the top of your shoulder to the, the edge of your fist, how far can you reach your opponent? And you'll, you'll see fights between two opponents that are the exact same height and pretty close in weight because they have to hit a weight. But one will have a two or three inch reach advantage and that huge. and that'll be huge and they'll yeah. and they'll talk about it the commentators will be like oh it's going to be a really tough match he's going to have to be very technical to get inside that reach like all these things um 
But what is really, you know, what has really come to the forefront leading up to this Olympics is that there were a pair, specifically a pair of uh, Namibian sprinters. They were 18 years old, female Namibian sprinters who whose blood testosterone levels exceed the limit that is set by the World Athletics Policy on Athletes. Which is a five nanomoles per liter. Yeah, five nanomoles per liter. So, and I mean, again, a nano, nano is 10 to the negative nine of a mole, which is a <laughs> random system of measurement. But well, it, it is literally, it's used in chemistry, it's standardized, but it's literally just based off of Avogadro's random experiments from like 150 years ago. But it works, so we don't question it. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so their levels have to be under five nanomoles uh, per liter of testosterone in their blood yeah. to compete in women's sprinting. Only certain events. Only certain distances. Before the 800 and the 1500. Yeah. If you yeah. think you can compete in the one and the two, but not the four and the eight and the eight, 15. Yeah. And <laughs> and one of these women, uh, Christine Mabumba, uh, she set a new world record in the 400 meter at a, I don't know if it was a qualifying event or if it was just a, a world, world, world yeah. race. Uh, and she is barred from competing in that event at the Olympics because her blood testosterone levels are higher than normal. And if your levels are are higher than normal, if you're higher than five nanomoles, you have to either uh, compete with the men, which also doesn't make sense because male the male testosterone range is much wider than women's. Women's is so women's natural range is 0.4 to two nanomoles per liter, typically testosterone level, and then male's natural testosterone level is 8.8 to 30.9 nanomoles. So it's kind of it's ridiculous to me that they're like, you have five, compete with the men when you're three animals less per liter than of testosterone. Like the lower the, end of the male spectrum, yeah. Yeah, then like the, the very low end of the male spectrum. Uh, or you have to take estrogen and other medications to like balance it out or stuff. And like taking taking estrogen is no joke. Like taking any no. sort of hormone is not a joke on your body. Well, if we're talking about the fact that if I, if you start injecting testosterone, even if I, a man or woman, if you start injecting yourself with testosterone and competing in elite events, you are cheating. Yeah. So then you're telling these women who have like just a natural physiological difference that in order to compete, they need to take a drug to be in the competitive field. It would be like saying, for me personally, this is really like this thing of, it would be like saying if you're over seven feet tall, you can't play in the NBA yeah. because it's a competitive disadvantage. It's a disadvantage to everybody else. You're yeah. you're too much better. Yeah. It would be ridiculous, yeah. right? Like you would, it would literally make no sense. And this is for me, it falls into a very similar line. It comes from a history of medical science being way underdeveloped for women, way underdeveloped for women of color. Yeah. And... And a little bit, too, is just like, yeah, this is like, like, I don't even know how else to put it, really. I just think it's a little ridiculous. Like, yeah, and, and the studies that have determined this five nanomoles per liter and stuff, they're flawed. They're, people have oh, questioned yeah. them. One of the studies, one of the most recent studies they're using as an example for this, it tested 48 people, like 48 uh, high performance but not elite women. Mm. And like injected them with or gave them like supplemental testosterone and saw how it affected them. But 48 women is you can't make a 
uh, like a global see, ruling from 48 I think people. To, I think I remember that like in my like university statistics course, it was like the minimum number you needed for a good sample size was like 50. That was like the <laughs> bare minimum to create a statistically significant sample. And, and you didn't even get that. And that had to be like 50 out of a small population. It couldn't be like 50 out of every woman on the planet. Like, <laughs> And also like what, what was the natural range of these women when you started and what population were you drawing from from these women and a lot of our standards feel that like in a lot of medical fields and stuff they're based on white people yeah that's like 100 percent it too yep. a lot very of psych- western yeah and how a lot of psychology if you look at like a lot of these like oh this is a standard thing that all humans have in psychology a lot of psych research is done on psych undergrads in western universities so you're you're already drawing from like a, a specific population so yeah to, to then take that and be like, oh, well, no, you are, like, you have this other natural advantage, but it's too much. It's not making the playing, fa- playing field fair, which we do have to make sure that, that's hard to say, playing field fair. We have to make sure that it's fair, but that'd be like saying to Michael Phelps, no, you can't swim. You're going to be too good at it. Well, exactly, right? And it, literally when we were talking about you have these air, you have different programs around the world that are selecting kids out of kindergarten and preschool oh, because yeah. they think, oh, you have a genetic disposition to be good at this or your mom or dad is really good at this, so you're yeah. going to be good at this, right? And so then you're saying that like, okay, so this, should it be the opposite? Should these people literally not be allowed to compete because they have an advantage? Like, it, it's ridiculous. It's a straw man argument. Yeah. But uh, the problem and why this comes up so much with sprinting is, or sprinting especially, is because sprinting is like almost bar none the premier event at the olympics in the summer other like, than gymnastics gymnastics <laughs> draws a huge crowd it does you were 100 <laughs> correct but i'm sorry but the 100 meter men and women's race that is probably one of the marquee events it is almost yeah. always on the last day of the olympics yeah. you need to know nothing about the sport it's very fast anyone it, can do it it doesn't take very long to watch yeah you but, can really hype it up but it is this huge draw and so there is a lot of, there's a lot of money behind winning sprinting in the Olympics. Yeah. So there's a lot of, and again, I, I don't want to dive too deep into the levels of corruption in the IOC, mm-hmm. but like, this is where it starts to go into, you know, are these governing boards, you know, basically arbitrarily creating rules to exclude certain women or people that will be more competitive because it takes away from jurisdictions that are a little bit flashier. It's or like richer. Yeah, exactly. Or richer. richer. And, it, and it's this classic thing every year in the, uh, every year in either, in any of the professional sports leagues uh, seasons, there's always a controversy in the playoffs that the refs are stacking against another team because they want to make sure the final occurs between the two biggest markets. If every professional sport could have the Stanley Cup final, the NBA final, whatever it is, be between the New York team and the LA team, they would. If you could roll, if, if you could push a button and make it happen every year, you would do that because those are the two biggest markets in North American sports. I mean, I heard about it with the, the NBA finals this year. Like it was two teams that not a lot of people were really, yeah, like the engaged, it was Milwaukee the, Bucks and the Phoenix Suns. Not yeah. two particularly big markets. Yeah, just and, saying. And they they haven't been like super good for a long time. So and and it's a, they both have like a different style of play. Yeah, they're not the really really big superstar teams. And I had some friends who, like, when those teams got in, they watched sports all the time. But they were like, oh, I'm not as interested in watching this year because I'm not as interested in these teams. Because LeBron's not in it. 
Or, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they didn't say that specifically, but yeah. <laughs> That's been one of the jokes in the NBA for a long time. Because, yeah. like, LeBron has played in, like, eight of the last ten yeah. finals or something <laughs> ridiculous. But yeah. anyway, but, uh, he had a movie coming out this summer. He was busy. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but that whole idea of it's, like, where is where's the reality of the sport versus mm-hmm. the market pressures? And I've heard yeah. from some people, it's like, well, if you really want to change the IOC and their behavior stop paying them like if you're like in marketing or you're a television station like stop paying them to have their stuff because you are funding them mm-hmm. like we are yeah. funding them so if like if we stopped if the, if the television stations and all of that stopped being like okay well we're pay, pay you this astronomical amount for the rights to show this then they wouldn't have as much money and then they wouldn't have as much power but everyone wants to watch the olympics and the tv stations need it this like so it, it's just this like Vicious little feedback loop we're trapped in. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and it, oh. yeah, I think it's it's a problem in the sport. And I think it's also like it it doesn't take into account that like human physiology is changing. Like yeah. we don't evolve the same way that other species do. And also we don't live on a time scale that allows us to see that. That literally would be impossible because you couldn't live to see evolution. It kind of defeats the whole how it works. Yeah. But like... We even, can track it over a long period of time. Yeah. And even to the point like... What have you heard the human body temperature is? Uh, it's like 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or whatever, right? Well, apparently, the human body temperature is actually about 96 point, or it's changed from when 98.6 was established as the standard or whatever. It's changed. It's lower now. It has changed in places with really good health care. Yeah. It is, is, then that's, I think, where the studies were done, and it's Mm. it's still higher in countries without really good health care because, like... Your, your natural body temperature helps to protect you from disease and especially fungal infection. Um, this is this was all in that podcast that I recommended from Radio oh. Lab, Fungus Among Us. Well, there you so, go. And you know, I didn't listen to it now. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it, it had this idea of like in these more developed, quote unquote, countries with uh, more robust health care, we're able to take care of our populations better. So our bodies don't have to be as robust at fighting this because we can fight it medically. But if you're from a country that doesn't have as much ro- as robust healthcare, having a higher body temperature is still a natural advantage that will like confer into children and help with survival. Hmm, interesting. But yeah, like <laughs> this is just to say that like, yeah, human physiology is changing. Our medical science is incredibly biased to particular populations yep. in particular countries at particular times. Yep. And they don't match up to the variation that is possible among human beings. But then on top of that, then you have people who are in control of this, who wield power over others. And anytime someone wields power over others, it tends to go one way. Yeah. And I mean, we can see this with, there were swim caps designed for people with thick, curly, and vol- volu- voluminous hair. <laughs> I'm having a hard time with words today. Uh, so it's basically like like black hair, right? Um, and swim caps specifically designed to go over them better. And they were not approved for use. Yeah. And people were like, hi, Why? And they're like, because it doesn't conform to the natural shape of the head. And they were like, hi, excuse me. How is that an advantage? If anything, it's a disadvantage. The swim cap has been designed over years to be tighter and tighter and tighter to the head to be faster. So if you're a little bit off the shape of the head, unless it looks like one of those freaking velodrome cycle (laughs) helmets that's like a big teardrop on your head. Like, I don't think it's conveying that much of an advantage. Yeah, so it's like, okay, so then what's really the point? Are Are you trying to prevent, like, black swimmers? Mm-hmm. Right. Which is, I mean, especially in the States, there's been uh, 
with like ghettoization and all these things. Maybe there aren't pools. So there's a like statistics of fewer black Americans learn to swim than white Americans. Um, and then, so there's just not as much in the pool, but I mean, we've seen from a lot of sports, black athletes are really good in a lot of sports. So could there be some like IOC or whichever governing agency did the swim caps? Could there be some racism here that is controlling this decision more so than actual like playing field fairness in just again, human versus human. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just like, it's really fascinating how this conversation around like the doping and the rules, like, I think you talk about this 15 years ago and it's pretty black and white, like what we need to catch the cheaters and we need to do all this testing. Mm -hmm. And now we're seeing like, you know, when you have this dearth of information and you have millions upon millions of eyeballs on this, that it really starts to be, it, it's, it's so quickly twisted. And it's, again, it's this technology, this knowledge, uh, this ability to create, like in a certain respect, it's a researcher's dream because you've literally got millions upon millions of samples from athletes over, over decades that you can track and trace and do all these testing on because they've had to, they have had to, um, consent to have these samples taken and be used, uh, because you can't compete otherwise, yeah. uh, or you can compete, but you can't win. <laughs> and, and you really start to see like, okay, knowledge is power and power is easily abused. And that's, I think what really we're starting to see now in this, this, just this misunderstanding of like, what is, what is really like human baseline for one. And then what is a competitive advantage that is natural versus one that is store-bought essentially right and and, and where yeah. like where does that line fall with people who need certain medications it's it came out yes. in rio that simone simone biles takes ritalin because uh, she has adhd because it was russian hackers they got in and they released this information and she just came out like i'm not ashamed to have adhd i've been on this since i was a kid and it's just what it is but some people were thinking oh well maybe this gives you a focus advantage right because and especially ADHD meds were super overprescribed for quite a while. And yep. then a lot of people who they got put on them and maybe they didn't need them, but if they take them, they can focus more and they can do better. So was this an unnatural advantage there? But if Simone Biles really does have ADHD, which it sounds like she does, then it just, it leveled the playing field for her, right? Like mm -hmm. it, made, it made it possible for her to compete. So there was a quote I found, it was like, these sorts of medications aren't performance enhancers, they're performance like make possible performance at all. Mm -hmm. And then there's even some idea that like maybe having ADHD, if it's controlled in, in a certain way, could give you an advantage because you're able to look out and take in more information more quickly mm -hmm. because you're used to being like taking in all that information all at once, as opposed to someone who like really does need to just like have like very focused little parcels of information. But like, is Simone Biles taking Ritalin an advantage or does it just make it so that she's able to compete and show us how truly phenomenal she is at this sport, right? All the questions, everything's a lot more, like the whole answer is a big gray area, yeah. right? Like, are you injecting anabolic steroids into your butt? Wrong. Do you take Ritalin because you have ADHD? Uh... We're not sure anymore. <laughs> yeah. Do you naturally just produce more testosterone? 
as a woman, men doesn't seem to be a problem for men. Uh, well, and again, because like for men, it is it's a the, big wide range. Yeah, and it is like we, we produce more testosterone naturally. It's more a part of our physiology mm-hmm. and things like that. But it is it's it's become really fascinating, and I think it is this it's this conversation of like, it, are you seeing the forest for the trees anymore? Are you are you testing because? Yes, there's lots of doping in sport, and it, there will always be. I, one of the articles I read in researching for this, they called it the unholy union or the unholy yeah. alliance between train between sport and doping. Yeah. And it's true, you're never going to eliminate this because there's too much of an incentive for people to cheat. It's just in everything, right? In in all of life, there's lots of these things where there's way way more of an incentive to be dishonest or manipulate others or any of these things that there are always going to be people that are tempted to do it. But you know, it's so it's so tricky. It's like, how do you balance that with this, the, the, with a uh, not perfect understanding of the human system? Mm-hmm. And again, like, should Michael Phelps not be allowed to compete or should we consider Mike, all of Michael Phelps records with a little asterisk beside them because he was built slightly better to be a better swimmer? Or is it more amazing to see that the human body can do some, there are some human bodies that can do things that none of us could dream of, regardless of how much we train for it. Um, you know, it's interesting. Uh, and I don't, I don't have the answer. I just yeah. like to pretend I do we, on a podcast. No, just <laughs> <laughs> we just like to talk about all the things mm-hmm. and then get to the end and go, so I don't really know. <laughs> but what do you think? Yeah. But yeah, I, I think it's, I think it is a great picture with no right answers. Yeah. And Especially in the certain sports that you're like, if everyone is doing it, then what is this sport even? I even used right? to hear people joke about, people used to joke about this with baseball. They'd be like, well, why not just create the Cheaters League and the regular <laughs> league and have a league where everybody's jacked up on every performance enhancer they could get their hands on and they're hitting 100 home runs a year and crazy things are happening. And then you have the normal one for everybody who wants to watch like the purest sport. And I think we all know the reason why you shouldn't No one would watch way. the purest sport. That, and it would, it would water down the competitive level of both sports. Yeah. You know, you probably have no one would want to pitch in the steroid league because everything you throw would be getting crushed and you're never going to make your 20 million dollar payday and no one would want to hit in the the pure league or whatever because all the pitchers are throwing thousand miles an hour and you can't hit anything right so there'd be this huge competitive imbalance and it just yeah it would make both both parts lesser and it, and again, it really defeats the purpose of like, what is the spirit of the Olympics about? What is the spirit of sport really about? Yeah. And it is, it's about seeing, it's about seeing the full capability of the human body in, in its purest and sometimes most distilled form for some of these different events and things like that, right? How far can you throw a hammer? How far can you throw a discus? Like we've been doing it for thousands of years and we're, we're going to keep watching it for a thousand more for whatever reason. Can you flip and do ridiculous things on a four inch piece of wood? Exactly. And, <laughs> and perfectly. Yeah. Do them perfectly, everybody. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it's, uh, I think it'll be really fascinating to watch this story continue to unfold over the Olympics. Uh, there are probably going to be dopers that are ch- yep. caught at this Olympics. Every time. And it'll be really interesting to, again, to see how this evolves like you know i think the conversation around the race stuff has really evolved so much over the last couple of years how it's going to continue to evolve in sport hopefully create a better understanding for for medicine and things like that but a quick note on race sort of things so the ioc has implemented a rule 50 and oh, yeah. uh, mm. so they're 
Rule 50 is a, it's like a ban. So it's a ban that prevents athletes from protesting or demonstrating at the Tokyo Olympics. And it states, no kind of demonstration or political, religious, or racial propaganda is committed, permitted in any Olympic sites, venues, or other areas to strive to ensure that the focus at the Olympic Games remains on athletes, performances, sport, unity, and universality. But of the only the athletes they have allowed to compete. <laughs> exactly, right? And again, and this, yeah. So it's, it is this this impossible balancing act of, you know, the purity of sport, blah, blah, blah. And the fact that some of these athletes, they, this is their, this is the biggest platform they'll ever have. And, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter if you're an artist, an athlete, you have an obligation and maybe an obligation is the wrong word, but you, when you have a platform, sometimes you have an opportunity to say things that don't get voiced. Yeah. And the IOC is taking that away from people. But again, it's this balancing act of like, well, is it in service of sport or is it really pointed against certain types of protest? Yeah. Because it because they don't want to attract any of that negative attention, even though the IOC does a good enough job of yeah. that on their own. And, it, and like, I can understand to an extent because, yeah, if you're watching a sport and you want to watch the sport and you want to just be able to focus on the sport and believe in the dream of the sport and the dream of the athlete... But it's it's taking it's taking an athlete out of the context in which they live and the yeah. and the the experience of their life, which maybe was unfair in ways, and they want to make it less unfair, I guess, more fair <laughs> for <laughs> double negatives. They want to make it more fair for people like them in the future. Um, yeah. And if we're talking about sport as a fair playing field, like where does this come in? But again, nice big gray topic yeah. Uh, yeah. that Davis and I don't have any answers for, but we know some science stuff. Mm -hmm. And we thought we'd share. Yeah. And I, I think this, again, it, like we, we wanted to talk about this because you and I are both big, you know, we like sport. We like seeing human achievement at that level and we like the Olympics and it's, it, we want to watch. It's interesting to us, but there are a lot of things that are swirling around that picture now. And it was, I think it was a good thing for us to talk about. Like, I, and I think it's just fascinating, right? Like, yeah. I, you know, and it's, it's, again, it's all this technology behind that's servicing the pushing peak performance and being abused to create artificial peak performance, really. And then that line in between the two that we are only just now really starting to look at and understand. But that pretty much brings us to the end of today's topic. Uh, we have no idea what we're going to talk about next. Nope. Um, we'll wait for something to pop up in the news. Probably. And <laughs> yeah, I, I don't have anything to plug, Sarah. Yeah, third sock from the sun. As always, check it out on YouTube. Uh, Plastic Series is coming to a close. Next video comes out uh, on the coming Wednesday, whatever the next... I don't know when we're going to Yeah, because who knows this. when this will be published. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I think the last Wednesday in July, it's coming out. Um, so check that out. My live D&D &D group, the D20 Initiative, we just finished our second season. Second season is totally online. It's all on YouTube, so you can check that out if you need some something a little lighter. I'm in one of the here. episodes. I'm in, one, I'm in a one-shot. So there you go. You can get a, a different although we're not in us. the same one shot which would have been which would have been very funny to promote yeah. on this on this uh episode but, i was the squeaker yeah. on that one like control davis's oh, yeah, fate yeah. in a way oh that's true that's true yeah in a way um but yeah other than that please uh, reach out to us on twitter 
at temporary expert, one expert, uh, to send us feedback or topics you'd like us to cover. Or if you do do the celery thing or you have great yeah. memes, please send us your memes. I love memes. We've gone over this before. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're going to get an Instagram up here at some point in the next little bit because that's what all the youngs peoples are on. Yep. Maybe we'll it. need a TikTok. We will not be making it. <laughs> nah, I'll eat those words in six weeks, but who knows? We're focused on Instagram right now. Um, <laughs> Gotta break that algorithm, baby. Yep. Speaking, Speaking of, of hacking. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Speaking of algorithms, uh, if you like this show, please consider leaving us a review on whatever platform you're listening. It really does help us out. It helps us reach more audiences and hack the algorithms. <laughs> <laughs> We're so on the same page. Oh, with I that know. One. That was perfect. All right. Well, she's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leung. And we have been your temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> I'm